All right. So, Jimmy, again, thank you for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. There's so much to dig into your background and all the amazing things you've done as a sportscaster and even now as well with your company. Uh, so without further ado, in your own words, can you please introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Jimmy Young. How did I do? Where else do you want to go? I'm the founder perfect. of Pro Cannabis. <laughs> I'm the founder of Pro Cannabis Media, a 24-7 resource for news, talk, information, and educational content about the cannabis industry. Nice. Perfect. And uh, Jimmy is a legendary sports caster. He forgot to uh, to include that in there. Can you touch a little bit on your uh, sports casting uh, background? Oh, Michael. Oh, Michael. I'm a legend in my own mind, maybe. No, actually, you know what I'm most, you know what I'd like to, and I've been talking about this with people over the last uh, few months as they discover what I've been up to, but I'm more proud of the legacy that I've created through my career, the people that I've mentored and introduced to broadcasting and, and helped get their career started because I had such an amazing, amazing run. Um, from age 20 to age 44, where I was a full-time sports guy. Went first um, at a local radio station outside of Boston in Lynn, where I had my first sports talk show. And then I got my first job on TV in 1981 at the CBS affiliate in Portland, Maine, and spent 11 amazing years in the great state of Maine, my second favorite state in the union, uh, Massachusetts being my hometown, my home. Well, I was born in New Jersey, but for the most part, I, I've spent most of my life in the Massachusetts state. And I've been blessed in so many ways that not only did I have a great career in sports, but I'm talking about weed now, man. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy, <laughs> right? That's crazy. <laughs> and so I've had, I, again, I've, I've really been very, very fortunate in my life. I, I, I count my blessings every day, but most proud of the impact that I've had on others, um, either as a teacher I teach sports casting at a, at a college in the area of Boston. I teach uh, sports public relations at another college. And I've taught uh, the impact of mass media on society at another college as an adjunct instructor. So uh, for the most part, I've been a teacher and coach my whole life. And then you've got your sports casting as your career. And here I am now as an entrepreneur um, working in the cannabis space where over the last nine months, we have generated 5.1 million impressions of our work on YouTube, 400,000 views of our videos on YouTube. And we've picked up about 8,000 subscribers on the Pro Cannabis Media YouTube channel. And those are only the YouTube numbers. We're still trying to gather the Google Analytics and the downloads because I love what I do. So I produce four shows a week and import another seven other producer shows. And we've got about 40 shows a month now on our 24 seven live stream that we run on our website, our Roku channel and our Apple TV app, PCM TV. So it isn't just about me anymore. It's really about the people that I surround myself with. And that's what sure. I'm most proud of. No, absolutely. Thank you for that. And um, I, I, you mentioned earlier that you grew up in New Jersey. And uh, one of the first things that came to mind when we first met, and I'm sure it's something that comes to mind for a lot of people, is how you went from a sportscaster to being an entrepreneur and doing the things you're doing right now, all the great things you're doing right now. So let's take a step back and start from 
Jersey and, and growing up in Jersey and, and how okay. that was. So, and your slow down. So I was born in Newark in 1950. Born in Newark, New Jersey. I went Beth Israel Hospital. I'm a nice Jewish boy. Okay. And my parents gave me Newton, Massachusetts, which was a beautiful suburb of Boston in 1961. Okay. So, mm. you know, I, I have four years in New Jersey, but New I will Jersey, tell you okay. going Going to visit New Jersey this past weekend at the New England Cannabis Convention was an emotional experience for me to, to think that I'm going to my home state where I was born, where my parents first met and raised me for the first few years. And I'm going to a cannabis conference in Atlantic City. I mean, it was really, it was really, an, I never thought I would be that emotional about it. And it, and it really was emotional for me because I think about the struggles of all the people that have fought for cannabis um, reform in our country and how hard these people worked. And, you know, I came along late in the advocacy movement. Do not get me wrong. I'm not taking credit for it in any way. But now that I'm in it, I'm just fascinated by it. I really am. And uh, like I said, Newton, Massachusetts. And in 1967, I'll be perfectly honest, that was the year because it pertains to a, an event that's happening. And I know I hate dating these podcasts because it's recorded, but there's an event happening this evening in Boston in sports that I really do relate to. And it's a Yankees-Red Sox one-game playoff for the wild card. And the last time these two teams played, it was in 1978 at Fenway Park. And wow. it's the Bucky bleeping dent game. And I use the bleeping word because I think everybody who ever listens to your podcast knows what I really want to say. Okay. It begins with an F, but I'm not going to say it. Um, but he hit the home run off Mike Therese and uh, changed the, uh, the whole prospect. But I became a sports fan in 1967 with that impossible dream year before there were wild cards. There was an American League pennant winner and a National League pennant winner. And they played for the World Series. And in 1967, four teams were separated by, I think, two games going into the final weekend of the season. And, you know, the Red Sox ended up winning on the last day of the season, similar to how they got into the wild card this past Sunday, similar to the Yankees. And, you know, those two teams have a story rivalry in it. And, it, and I, I'll be honest, I have not watched a full baseball game all season. Yeah. Like, Tonight, I'll be watching the full baseball. Now, I have something like eight phone calls during the game because it's like I don't get my work done. So right. I know I'm going to need to multitask because baseball has changed quite a bit in the, uh, let's see, 67 to 2021. That's a good uh, 54 years, I think, something like it that. Is, yeah, so, yeah. right, it's changed quite a bit. And uh, you need to multitask to watch baseball these days. 30 seconds between pitches. Come on, man. I know, Throw the I ball, know. you know? So, so that actually leads, and that's a great point you bring up. And that leads me to my next question, which is how was it growing up in this time? Because obviously you felt, you fell in love with baseball at a younger age or sports in general, at a younger age. So how, yeah. was, how was life growing up? Um, how we, you know, being raised by your parents, is, did they do anything looking back to kind oh. of, make you fall in love with sports or is it something you just found on your own oh no 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 no. dad was an athlete uh older brother mark was an athlete in fact my hero growing up so i have an older brother who's five years older than me it's just the two of us and he he was a three-sport athlete in high school he was my youth coach um and in many ways my hero and still a role model and and, and look i'm not i never avoid this i admit 
that I had a privileged life and I'm extremely grateful for the sacrifices my parents made for me and my brother. Uh, they did not join country clubs, even though they could. They sacrificed their own vacation so that he and I could go to summer camp, overnight summer camp. You know, they always did things. They gave up things in their lives so that me and my brother could have a great life. And it, I'll never forget that. So, you know, they were all sports fans. Dad was a minor league, you know, was my first minor league coach growing up. And then I went on to Little League fame and Babe Ruth fame. Uh, pitched a Little League no-hitter when I was 12. Yeah, I peaked athletically probably around 14. And then I had my first injury. And then, to be honest with you, the rest of my life has been riddled with injuries. I, still, <laughs> I, I have the worst arthritis. I mean, you can, if you visually, my hands, you see how crooked all my hands are? It's really gnarly. They're gross. I'm sorry, I just grossed out your audience. No, you're fine. You're fine. But it's arthritis. And I have arthritis throughout my body. And um, I, I suffer with chronic pain. And it's why I qualified for a medical marijuana card in 2013. When I walked into the doctor's office, he goes, well, you know, tell me about why you think you need to have a medical card. And I go, do I need to say more? And I showed him my fingers and he goes, nope, you got it. There you go. See you later. <laughs> so I, you know, um, I kind of fast forwarded through the broadcast career and the high school and went to Tufts University. By the way, um, Tufts University is a very nice prestigious school outside of, call, um, outside of Boston. My dad was class of 45. My brother was class of 74. My sister-in-law class of 76. I'm class of 79. Their daughter, Emily, was class of 2003. So we have three generations of jumbos. Yes, the, the mascot <laughs> of the Tufts University School is Jumbo the Elephant, donated by P.T. Barnum in 1865. Yes, wow. P.T. Barnum. Yeah. And uh, in fact, if, if I move my camera... You see the elephant right there with the T on it? There he is. Yes, I do, yeah. That's a mini, that's a mini jumbo, if you will, next to my Emmy Award. Anyway, um, you know, that is, uh, that's really my life story. I mean, I started playing sports when I was five, six years old because, you know, Brother Mark was doing it. And then I uh, followed in his footsteps as much as I possibly could and played some college soccer and continued to play baseball through my Babe Ruth years and then focused on soccer and became a coach and started coaching soccer when I was uh, 15 years old. I remember mom having to drive me to the games that I was coaching the youth of Newton, Massachusetts during that time and um, ended up, you know, continuing that because I love working with young people still do. In fact, that's probably one of the first things I'm going to do once I'm able to free myself up from being an entrepreneur and start volunteering as a youth soccer coach again, because I, when the, when the air changes and I know you're in sunny California where it's the same season every day, you know, in Massachusetts, we have four distinct seasons and the fall air has finally settled in. In fact, tonight at Fenway park, it's going to be overcast it's going to be cool. It's going to be in the 50s. And it's baseball weather. You know, it's autumn baseball weather. And that's the beautiful thing of being in Massachusetts is you really do get four distinct seasons. Unfortunately, one of them is winter. And as you get old, it's really a pain in the ass. <laughs> no, so, I've heard that a lot, actually. Yeah. Well, we're looking for we're looking for rentals in Florida. If anybody's listening and wants to find me, uh, I'm looking for a monthly rental in uh, either January or February this year, so we can be those. Uh, what do they call it? Uh, 
the snow bunnies, I think is what they call them when the guy, people from the north come down to the south for the, mm -hmm. for the winter. So I'm signing up for that right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so when, when you touched on college earlier. So when you were in college, what did you, um, where, where was your head at? Were you kind of committed already to being in sports? Were you thinking about other possibilities? Were you fully committed to, um, again, like I said earlier, be, being in sports? So were, were you, you know, what was so, your head doing in college? I got you. I got you. So I thought I was going to be a teacher and coach, a high school social study teacher and a soccer coach for the rest really? of my life. Wow. Spend my summers at uh, boys summer camp coaching and being a counselor. Um, they were the most influential people in my life at that time. I'm talking about coaches other than my, my older brother, Mark, but he too was a coach. So that's what I thought I would do. My junior year, I played varsity as a sophomore and I was slated to start as a junior and I ripped up my ankle for the second time in five years. And I mean, tore ligaments. And I was pretty devastated because I really kept that dream of, you know what, if I work harder than anybody, I bet I could make the U.S. national team. And, you know, even though I was a D3 athlete, you know, I was, a, I was fairly competent uh, at a young age. And I always felt like I knew when I was playing, you know, I made varsity as a 19-year-old. And, and by the way, I just want to say, Michael, I weighed 165 as a varsity soccer player in 1976. I weigh 168 now. Okay. So for the record, it's been, I've been very happy about that. Um, That's so, a great thing. <laughs> yeah. You know what, you know what uh, Ricardo Maltabon knows, Hey, you look marvelous, right? I want to make sure I keep that. I look marvelous. So I, uh, a friend of mine who started Tufts university television, it was an on-campus television channel asked me, he was doing a season preview. And of course having Jimmy young injured was a big impact on the future of that team please, whatever. Uh, he, he interviewed me and he said, well, what are you going to do now that you have all this free time? And I said, I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I have a three courses this, this fall. Cause I cleared my schedule so I could play soccer and go on the road and not worry about it. And he said, well, how'd you like to produce sports at channel four in Boston? And I went, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about television production. He goes, no, you know, sports. I go, you're damn right. I know sports well, you get college credit to watch sports on TV. And I said, Ooh, sign me up for that. I like that gig. Right. Then I, then I realized it was 12 to 12 every Saturday and Sunday, noon wow. to midnight, 24 hours. Now, now Michael, I worked for the first African-American sportscaster in Boston. His name was Jimmy Myers. He's still a good friend of mine. In fact, one of the first people to call me during COVID to make sure I was okay. Okay, tells you the kind of relationship we've had over the years. In fact, you could make a case that Jimmy Myers and Jimmy Young are truly twin brothers, different mothers, which was the name of our podcast, which is available on YouTube, but it hasn't been, we haven't done one in probably six years. Um, and I love the guy. He, needless to say, is my mentor, uh, big influence on my life, taught me a lot about people. And this was time, by the way, the 70s in Boston was the time of busing forced busing. It was not a time that whites and blacks actually got along very well. And, and I met my brother. Okay. Not my blood brother, but my twin brother, you know what sure. I'm saying? <laughs> and, and, and then I said, you know what, I'm going to give this sports production, sports casting thing, a, a, a gig. Let's just see what happens. And I became the sports director at Tufts. 
for the Tufts television channel. I did play-by-play of the basketball team and the football team and the soccer games. And I graduated college with about 50 games of play-by-play experience and then parlayed that into a job with a local radio station outside of Boston. I was a sales guy during the week, but I did sports and a sports talk show on the weekends. So when you're 22, 23 years old, you're an idiot. You're going to work seven days a week and you're going to you know, pursue your livelihood during the week. And then you're going to pursue your dream on the weekends or at night. Right. And that's what I was able to do. And um, unfortunately, about a year in, about eight months, 18 months in that that radio station had a fire and they laid everybody off, including the sales team and the broadcast team, both me, see you later, went oh, and I went out and did a, a videotape, put a tape together, videotape together with the same guy who introduced me to that job, that opportunity as a, an wow. intern slash producer and uh, found out about a job in Portland, Maine at the CBS affiliate. It was a part-time weekend anchor job, okay? It paid $27.50 a show. Really? No hourly raise, no hourly wage. It was a union shop. That was the talent fee. So every time you appeared on camera, you got $27.50. And I got the job. By the way, nobody gets the first job that they apply for in television, okay? And I did. And it's amazing. And then moved to Portland, Maine. Now, I was, you got to realize, sometimes I got to do three shows on a weekend. They didn't even do an 11 o'clock sports cast on Sunday nights, the busiest night in sport. They just didn't do it. This was, a, it, it was 1981. All right. So um, that's how I started. I, I did substitute teaching during the week to supplement when I wasn't filling in for another $27.50 a show. Wow. Okay. You know, when when my boss, the late Frank Fixeris, passed away, um, you know, he really um, was a great influence on me about how to treat people professionally and with respect. So I got the broadcast bug from Jimmy Myers, my mentor in Boston, who ended up working at WOR in New York for in the 80s. And I got how to treat people right from Frank, my first boss. Um, So great great um, tutelage, if you will, um, cut my teeth, paying my dues. Um, six months later, I did get a full-time job just for the record. And, um, and then ultimately became the 11 o'clock anchor. And, but I got to travel to Super Bowls, World Series, NCAA wow. um, finals, um, college World Series, uh, spring training. It was really an amazing, amazing. And if you're a sports fan, to get paid to go watch and talk about sports on TV is a pretty good gig. You're not going to make a lot of money unless you're (laughs) top, top, right? But at that time, local news was a lot more established than uh, where it is now. Audiences have slipped. People are losing their jobs because the audiences are slipped, which means, you know, they're just not, there isn't as much money to go around for the production anymore. So um, it was a, it was a, it was a great, opportunity. I took advantage of it. I was in Portland, Maine from 1981 to 1992. And then I found out about this 24-hour regional CNN that was starting in Boston called New England Cable News. And my career goal had always been, I want to come back to my hometown of Boston and prove that I can do a sports cast on the TV or and fill in on radio or whatever, but on TV as well as anybody in the market. 
and I, I got the, so so what made you have that chip on your shoulder was there a reason for that yeah looking, you're looking, looking at it man <laughs> i was you know what um I, the reason was i believed in myself and it took me quite a few years to be comfortable on camera and become myself and when mm. i teach young people now about it i say i mimicked the person or the people that i respected in the business it's easier to mimic someone than to actually be comfortable enough. It takes time. It's experiential mm. learning. So you really do have to go through it over and over and over and over again. So um, I was up there and I, you know, just kept doing it. And then they had this opportunity at this new channel. It was, a, like I said, a regional 24-hour news channel for New England. And they called New England Cable News at the time, the talk of New England. Remind me why I call myself the pro-cannabis media is the talk <laughs> of the cannabis industry, okay? Ah, I like that, I like that. No, no original, no original ideas no anymore. <laughs> we, just re, we, just re, we just recycle them, you know? So that was, so I got my job in, in Boston. Now you gotta realize you're going from the 72nd market in the country, there's about 220 of them. And you're going to, at the time, Boston was the, I think they were the eighth largest market in the country, but you weren't going to a network affiliate. You were going to a cable channel startup. So I took a $20,000 cut in pay to fulfill my career goal and come back to Boston to be a host of my own show, which was why I did it. Plus they offered overtime, which I knew I would end up making more than I made in Portland, Maine. So I came back, had my own show for six years and we rode the wave of a startup in the cable TV industry back from 80, uh, 92 to uh, 98 full-time when I, when I um, my second three-year contract ran out and we'll, I'm sure you're going to ask me why I left at some point, but Absolutely. that was uh, the, the sports world with Jimmy Young was was my show. Uh, we did a 90 minute live talk show and wrap up show every Saturday and Sunday, 1030 to midnight. Again, if you're in sports, get used to long hours, get mm. used to 2 a.m. Go to bedtime, 10 a.m. Wake up time. OK, wow. Uh, Wednesday through Sunday for 25 years. OK. So it was not conducive to the two marriages that failed that I was involved with okay, in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but again, other factors involved and all that neat stuff. Sure. But I left that, I left in 98 because I was doing the sports talk show for kids that I had co-founded and produced and also worked with the kids on how to be on camera talent. And that earned me that trophy back there, the Emmy which is a, sure. a talk show Emmy in the sports special category in Boston, which is one of the more competitive um, categories in any major market because, you know, network affiliate channels tend to have more budgets, better equipment, what have you, and usually put together one or two sports specials a year. And that was a, uh, the special kids show that we did with a former quarterback of the New England Patriots called Drew Bledsoe. I don't know if you remember Drew Bledsoe. Yeah, I do, I do. And, and Jimmy, yeah. can you give me one second? I just got a, a emergency text message. So I need to just call this number really quick, if you, if you don't mind. Oh, cool. Well, first of all, I hope everything's okay. But just hit pause on the record or just sure, keep yeah, it I'll, going. I'll you know, edit that. it later, right? Okay. Uh, yes, Go. yes, yes. Give me Go one ahead. second. Thank you. No problem.
important. It is definitely important. Okay. No, go ahead. It's important to. I know at some point you do want to ask me why I left full-time sports yes. casting. Yes, yes. So I'm so at right that now, point. This is, this is where we're okay. at right now. Because it does, <laughs> it does relate to why I got into what I'm doing now, too. Oh, absolutely. We're, def we're definitely going to touch on that. Um, okay. So the last thing we were talking about was Drew Bledsoe. Right. The, the Emmy. So we won that Emmy. Um, all right. Let me, let me give you a quick anecdotal story about that that'll sure. be, be interesting. Um, so that show was the Kid Company Sports World show with Drew Bledsoe. And, you know, it was very satisfying. I, I just want you to know that I never got the chance to accept the Emmy at the awards because I sent the kids to accept the awards for me. Wow. One of the kids who I sent to accept the award worked for CNN for 10 years. Okay. Wow. <laughs> and he ended up replacing me. No, it's interesting. The kid, Anish, um, ended up replacing me as the host of the show when I tried to. Um, um, I, had, I had a friend who was interested in taking it and syndicating it nationally. And I made a deal with the woman, the co founder. And she accepted it one day and then the next day ended up saying, you know, instead of accepting it, we're going to let you go change the name of the show and we're going to put Anisha on as your host. Wow. So I learned, a, I learned a valuable lesson of making sure you get everything in writing. Okay. And that being said, six months later, that show disappeared. So, but Anish did a great thing and he went off through a CNN after went to Harvard. Uh, he uh, went on to a career as a uh, international reporter for CNN. And I'll never forget vacationing in Jamaica during the tsunami. And I look up at the screen and there's Anish reporting from the tsunami and saying, oh my God, I now know where Anish is. <laughs> you know, wow. And I was really proud of the fact that, uh, you know, one of the kids that I had worked with uh, had gone on and he actually worked for the White House, and I want to say it was under the Obama administration, and I'm pretty sure he was writing speeches for the Secretary of Treasury. Um, not sure where Anish is now, but we are friends on LinkedIn, and once in a while we touch base. But um, the only regret I have is my one of my sports heroes. I had two sports heroes growing up. Uh, one was Bill Russell, and one was Muhammad Ali. And Russell made an appearance on the show after I was done as a host of the kids show. Wow. And I happened to be filling in doing weekend sports at the time as a freelancer. So I was a little, I was a little jealous of the young man who I had trained, who had gone on to replace me and interview one of my sports heroes. But you know what? Everything's meant for a reason. Uh, and I got to meet Bill Russell about 10 years after that and still a great thrill and still the greatest basketball player of all time. Don't be telling me Michael Jordan is, please, okay? And don't be telling me LeBron is either. Bill Russell never lost a game that was an elimination game at any level in his career. So mm. if you value the greatest of all time as the amount of championships someone wins, right. then he is the greatest winner in sports history because he never lost an NCAA final that was single elimination. He never lost a seventh game in the NBA. He never wow. lost an Olympic gold medal. He won it, won it in 56. And 
you know, he just got inducted as a bas- as a as a coach in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, you know, and you think about how many of the greats have made it as both a coach and as the player. And he really is the greatest of all time. And I'll I'll argue against any Chicago Bull fan ever um, or LeBron James fan. And I have a lot of respect for LeBron too. A lot of people don't like him, but I actually do because he is a he is truly a five tool player and a five tool man, and has done right. so much for community. And uh, you know, I, I definitely like. Uh, what he's done with his success a lot of people don't but i will be in his i'm in his corner so that's good anyway, that's I got, good what you gotta do michael get me off on a sports tangent yeah. i go you know <laughs> not afraid to say no, no, that no, and no then worries, i and so. then and and you realize i left full-time sportscasting work to go work with a guy named lenny zakem lenny zakem was the um, executive director in northeast of the anti-defamation league and they named this beautiful bridge in Boston after him. And it's important that you remember that name, Zakem, because his brother, Stu, is a public relations guy in the New York area for the cannabis industry. And it is with Stu Zakem in 2018 at a New England cannabis convention that I did my first podcast with. And I told Stu when I met him, I said, your brother put us to together for a reason we will be lifelong friends and we have been yeah. so there you go oh, that's, oh, that's i have beautiful. no idea where i am in my career i have no, no you... <laughs> idea you know <laughs> so what you, can i you... tell you i got totally lost you know so so you you got the emmy um so when do things start shifting for you from you know being in the sports world to to the canvas world because well, there's a lot know, of there's an interim. The interim is I went over to the sales side at the same station I was a sportscaster at. And I worked in sales for um, 15 years and became a local sales manager, set a couple of records for sales as a rookie and all that neat stuff. And, um, and, and then I, when I became a man- sales manager, I realized that I wasn't sure I wanted to be in management. I'm more, what a shock, right? I need to be out with the people, right? Mm. So I went back, I went, and followed, um, I went over to the Boston Globe, which, as you know, is a very premier newspaper in the Boston area. And you're probably saying, how did he go from TV and digital media to print? Well, at the time, Boston Globe was diversifying into digital media. And the guy who hired me, and, and I had a great conversation at my interview, because I had a vision. I knew where I thought I knew where media was going, and it was going right into the digital space. Print was becoming, you know, dinosaur. And the Boston Globe had invested in the channel that carries the Boston Red Sox and Boston Bruins games, TV. They had the online site, boston.com, which is now the biggest regional media site in new england and you know that's where i saw the future and they gave me a quite a big book of business to manage so it was a pretty decent reason why i left and i stayed there for about 18 months and it was great and then the entrepreneurial bug started to scratch a little bit Uh. they laid off something like 750 people at one point and i volunteered to be laid off at that point and said, I want to start my own company. And that first company in 08 was Young Broadcasters of America, where I trained young people to be on-camera talent. I basically built a training TV studio 
in another suburb of Boston. And we started teaching 10 to 18 year olds how to host their own shows, how to be better public speakers, how to actually talk to each other instead of text each other. And then, of course, I brought in adults for the young kids, the young broadcasters to interview. And Young Broadcasters of America live streamed 1,500 hours of live programming with just kids for five years. And we had a decent following. We trained over a couple of hundred kids through there. We ran summer camps. And we also got earned uh, another Emmy nomination for a production that we created called K-Sports New England, which was really a sports magazine show hosted by two teenagers. And they would introduce all the high school stories, interesting high school sports stars. So it was a, it was a magazine show for kids about kids in sports. And um, we placed that on the channel that the Boston Globe Media owned, that New England Sports Network, Nesson. And, uh, you know, it, it was a nice uh, feather in the cap. And I'm actually more proud of the nomination we got, to be honest, than the trophy I won, um, just because it proved that I, not only could I do Emmy award-winning production, but I sure. could also teach kids how to do Emmy award-winning productions. So, right, right, right. And, and think about been... that. Think about that, Michael. We were live streaming sure. in 08, 09, 10, and 11 before people even knew what live streaming was. And we had a, a call in over the radio, over the air, four or 5,000 watt AM radio stations carried this show. It was a sports talk show for kids. And we took a camera, put it in the studio and live streamed the whole thing onto my website in 09. Really? And that was in 09? Yep. In 09. Early wow. adapters, early adapters, man. And I'll tell you, I worked with it. We went from live stream to Ustream to justin.tv which became twitch you know how big twitch is now absolutely twitch. yeah it's the gaming site right i mean it, and it's really funny because now my content is on twitch too pro cannabis media has a channel on twitch as well and uh, like i said it, it's the how did that go from there to getting into weed and and it really started in march of uh 2018 when another friend of mine who, who built a uh, podcast aggregation network called CLNS Media, and that still exists, and he encouraged me to do a, a podcast on cannabis. And I was like, you know, what's a podcast? <laughs> you know, it's like, I wasn't even sure. And then he said, hey, it's an interview show. It's an audio file. Oh, okay, I can handle that. Where's my cassette recorder and microphone? Because that's the last time I did audio interviews. Like my first audio interview was with a guy named John Havlicek, the great a Hall of Fame basketball player for the Celtics. So I go down on March 18. That's when I met Stu Zakem, was at that trade show. He did one of my first uh, podcasts. And I said, you know, your brother put us together for a reason. And that the whole, this whole pro cannabis media venture started with a In the Weeds with Jimmy Young podcast with Stu Zakem. Wow. Yeah. So, so all the, sorry, go ahead. You know, so it all, it's what goes around comes around. I mean, Boston is a small city. It's not like New York. It's not like L.A. Uh, and it's uh, got a storied history, obviously. And, you know, I was just very fortunate, again, to be surrounded by good people who give me suggestions so I can get out and do what I do best, which is talk to people, get good, you know, interviews with them and tell good stories. And uh and, and then here I am, you know, three years later, 
and now we're live streaming as pro cannabis media um four shows i do four shows a week we have seven other producers we have a live uh, show with sherry tutkis the green nurse every morning at 8 a.m eastern uh, we're live with Sherry Tuckus and for 8 to 8.30, and she's a really, really cool woman, um, registered nurse, understands the cannabis space, breast cancer survivor. Actually, I think she's a cancer survivor. Not sure about which body part. So let me rephrase that. But she is, um, she's awesome, and that's on our air. We also do a live show that's on right now as we record this called the Jazz Cabbage Cafe that is produced out of Michigan by the executive director of Normal in Michigan. His name is Rick Thompson. And he's one of the contributors to our weekly news show that we call We Talk News. And he does the Michigan Report. And then we do our own uh, news show every Friday at noon that live streams. That's a wrap up of the national scene and all the state correspondents who call in their reports. And I'm always looking for good talent. Uh, I found a California correspondent still looking for Arizona and I'm looking for Colorado and Washington and Oregon. We have Michigan. Uh, we're in talks with somebody from Pennsylvania. We want, uh, I'm in talks with somebody from Ohio. We have DC. I'm still looking for someone in New Jersey. We have Vermont. I'm looking for someone in Maine. So we're going to continue to grow this and we're going to do it through webinars. We're going to go to market now with another former broadcast comrade of mine with a lot more network experience than I have. His name's Josh Binswanger, I hope. I, may, I hope I didn't jinx it because he still hasn't made up his mind, okay? But he's better than 50-50. So I'm just hoping that he says yes and we can launch these webinars. Um, at this point, I may have to launch them with or without him because I don't want to wait any longer. Of but the point is these transferable oral communication skills that all broadcasters have, how to host your own show, how to do an interview, how to use your voice to be a more effective communicator and public speaker, how to be a better presenter. All this stuff is part of these workshops that I created with Young Broadcasters of America that I'm now going to apply to the Plus 21 crowd as I look for more talent and to train people to be their own multimedia journalists, their own multimedia producers of their own shows, Right. And yes, Michael, you already qualify uh, to be a canacaster because you're already doing it. And that's the most important thing. There are plenty of others out there that are podcasters and what have you. But I really want to make sure that I continue to give back my skill set to others so that they can enjoy the type of uh, success and fun uh, that I've had during my career. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Um, there's something so you were touching on the fact earlier, you know, when you got introduced to cannabis by um, the gentleman asking you to do the show, correct? Um, so, oh yeah, yeah. My, you told me to go do a cannabis podcast. Yeah, Nick Sure, sure, yep. sure. So my question to you is: obviously, cannabis has always been around in the '60s, '70s, '80s. Always been around. So, even while you were a sportscaster, did the cannabis cause? ever draw your attention or was it always off the radar until you started doing a podcast it was always i was never an advocate i was i never went to can the freedom rally in boston for 30 years or cannabis shows or anything like that i was a sports guy first of all so that's what my focus was um yes it has always been a part of my socialization what okay. a shock I, I was adhd as a kid in the 70s we didn't even know what ADHD was in the 70s. You know that, right? Wow. 
it was just boys being boys, right? And when I went to school under the influence of cannabis, I found I could hyper-focus. And it managed to get me better grades and get me into a very good college, okay? So, and we didn't know what we were doing. We were just being kids, right? And I used it at, at a 1971. I was 14 years old. It was the first time I was introduced to cannabis. And I was getting, um, you know, back then, the drinking age was 18. And when you're a teenager, you're under a lot of peer pressure to drink alcohol and beer. You know, Absolutely. you want to act like an adult, right? Well, I would get sick after three beers and I would get abuse from my friends. They'd say, well, you can't hold your beer. What the hell's the matter with you, young? Right? Hey, what's the matter with you? Hold your beer, man. <laughs> like, whatever I try, you know, I'm like, you know, you know. <laughs> find out, I find out as an adult that I'm allergic to hops. And I haven't had really? a beer in 30 years. Yeah, I have not had a beer. Wow. Once I figured out I was allergic to hops, I was like, well, that explains a few things because, you know, okay, I'm not going to be able to drink beer. So do I move over to the hard stuff, which I didn't like at all, or do I start smoking weed, which I enjoyed, you know, and I could hyper-focus and wow. I could pass my driver's test under the influence. Probably not something I'm very proud of, but it was definitely <laughs> in my system that day. Okay. Of course. Of course. And, and mom, my late mom didn't know because she was in the back seat. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> wow. You were sneaky, huh? Yeah, I was a bit of a rebel. I was definitely someone, uh, I definitely was a, uh, a challenge as a child, a bit of a rebel. Uh, like I said, I, all the pressure was off me because my older brother was the perfect one and the firstborn and, you know, the, the magna cum laude graduate from college who went on to be a lawyer and marry his college sweetheart and create two beautiful children, my nephew and niece, who um, have had their own successes. And now they all live within 10 minutes of each other in the uh, greater Washington, D.C. area in the Chevy Chase, Maryland. Okay. So, okay. you know, like I said, I've been blessed, Michael. Of course, of course, of course. And uh, so, at this point, you're you're doing the the, uh, the you start doing a podcast, right? Um, yep. If you remember, at what point you started that in 2018? At what yep. point did you fully commit to the fact that look, cannabis has a bad rap, or at least the government tries to paint it with a bad rap, but it's actually a lot of beneficial uses for a lot of people, especially medicinal. Right. So at what point were you starting to realize these things and, you know, started diving further into it? Well, I, I you know, inquiring minds are want to know. I've always been someone who likes to talk to people and ask good questions. Okay. And by the way, as an interviewer, um, you, you can have a set of talk topics you want to talk about, but the most important thing as an interviewer is to listen to the person you're talking to and think of a question. Maybe you take a quick note or something like that, right. just to remind, hey, you were talking about this before. Can you go back to that and explain a little bit more? Those are right. the most important things. And in a good interview is a good conversation. And whenever you can get someone to say, wow, that's a really good question. That means it's not a question that they're used to answering with a rope answer something that's routine you know sure ask me you know what my favorite color is and i'll say blue or whatever as opposed to wow that's a really interesting question what that basically means is i've got to actually think about what i'm going to say before i say it it's a it's a it's a um, delay mechanism that we all have mm. and it also is a tremendous form of respect as an interviewer and i if you ever watch our shows on any of the 
various entities that we distribute them on, I pride myself. I want to get that out of each person I do an interview with. Wow, that's a really good I question. See. Right. Because it shows you're listening to them for crying out loud, you know? So, Absolutely. Right. So, um, you want me to repeat my question to you? Sure, go ahead. Because that's the sure. other thing that happens when sure. you smoke a lot of weed. <laughs> you forget about what the hell you just said, right? <laughs> my question to you was at what point uh, after 2018 did you start taking? the benefits I, of cannabis seriously and wanting to pursue well, it further. I, I, I've always, I've always had a respect for the plant. Okay. Um, the journey has been, let's produce this show. Let's do this interview. And as I do interviews with doctors and nurses and cancer survivors and um, athletes and in, uh, researchers and lawyers and investors, and I'm always asked 353 interviews, Michael, in the last two years. It's a right. lot of interviews. That's a lot of people. That's going to be a lot of knowledge you're going to acquire, right? And now we're repurposing those interviews. Now okay. we're, we're, we're going to have, create resources with some of the people that I talked to um, over the years. Okay. And, and so we've gone from, okay, we did this interview show. That's one thing. Let's do a, let's do a new show. Okay. That has to be on tape. It's not going to be live. So we'll do a new show. Okay. Let's do a live talk show. So in July of 2019, I teamed up with a guy named Kurt Dalton, who's the founder of cannabis.net. One of the most popular okay. websites um, that's out there. That's pro cannabis. He lives in Massachusetts. We bonded over our love of the Boston Celtics. He came on my show and, um, and I said, you know, you'd be great as a co-host. Let's do a talk show once a month. We rented some studio space in a visual radio studio, which is not a similar. A visual, ra a visual, visual radio. radio. Okay. Visual radio is a thing. Okay. It's more of a thing in Europe than it is here in the United States. But more and more radio stations are finally figuring out that if they put a camera in the studio and they live stream it, they can create twice the content something I learned years ago, okay? And every piece of content we create, again, is a video interview followed with an audio file that becomes a podcast. So all these shows that we do are also podcasts. And uh, so now we're doing news and a talk. Now we're doing news, a talk show, and my interview show. Now we do it once a month. We've had, oh, by the way, on We Talk live which is what it was called um, we had uh, steve d'angelo on announcing the last prisoner project we had tommy chong on talking about what he's up to we had bruce linton on the founder of canopy growth we had the founder of legal seafoods talking about their campaign about 420 they took a they did a, a very clever spin on 420 and used a series of commercial uh, talking about um, our fish are getting high on omega-3s, you know, and cute <laughs> things like that. It was very, very clever. And so we had the CEO on of Legal Seafoods, who was an old family friend. And we had some really cool talk shows. It was only once a month, so it was relatively easy to get really good guests. Kurt had been covering cannabis for six, seven years, so his Rolodex and his contacts were deeper than mine. And we were doing this once a month until March of 2020 when the pandemic okay. hit, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So between March 2019, wait, March 2018 and March 2019, that second New England Cannabis Convention, we put together a set 
that looked very similar to the backdrop behind me. And we did 19 hours of live interviews from the floor of the New England Cannabis Convention. At that time, the company was called Cannabis Multimedia Network. And we had 53 interviews over 19 hours. Every half hour was a different crew. I had other people doing interviews, including some of my former young broadcasters who are now beautiful 25-year-old uh, females and males that uh, were comfortable on camera and doing interviews. So, you know, I recruited some people I knew and uh, we did all these interviews. And then about a month after that, uh, a friend of mine who discovered us at that show, his name was Jason Wolf. He was the uh, vice president of Entercom radio at the time, running the uh, WEI operation out of Boston that was the number one sports radio station at the time. And he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm doing talk about cannabis. I mean, this, I do a new show and I do hey. And he goes, oh, that's so cool. I want to talk to you. He comes to the office a month later and he says, I just bought the URL pro cannabis media. Do you want it? And I go, I looked around at the other two people that were working with us at the time. And I said, you guys like that? And they go, yeah. And I go, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're buying it. And we became pro cannabis media. And okay. that was and that was um, June 2019. And we became an LLC. And then let's jump ahead now, March 2020 pandemic time, right? My buddy Kurt from cannabis.net, I saw him once a month. Now what are we gonna do? What do we do? Why don't we do a news show? We do it on Zoom. I'll do some news stories. You comment on it. We'll go back and forth, see where that goes. Started doing it every week and started to pick up some momentum. And, um, and then the fall, we decided to try and do uh, three two-hour talk shows, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. We called the show Cannabis Chat. And on Friday, we called it Green Rush Live, the business of cannabis three two-hour live shows that we were doing on Twitch because I had heard that Twitch was an interactive website and said, you know, maybe right. this is the answer. Let's do that. Let's give it a shot. Technically, we do it. We did it. We um, didn't necessarily rent office space. We just kind of pirated empty offices in the building I'm in because after all, it was the pandemic and nobody was uh, going anywhere, right? Happened to be empty. So we set up the trade show booth. We do all this stuff. We're in there. And um, Gosh, I got to tell you, so September, October, November, December, that was six hours a week live. And I'm 60, I was 63 last year. <laughs> I was, I got burnt out, man. Yeah, okay, like I, I said, just you, got, you don't look a day over it, like I always I say. I burnt out. And, by, and after a while, I said, you know what? We're not getting the numbers we want, having great interviews, have all this content. But, uh, and I'm too tired to host all these shows anyway, at this point, it gives you an idea of how hard those radio guys that have these four hour talk shows on sports talk or whatever. It's not easy. It's not easy. I don't care if you're by with a co-host, two people, three, it's a lot. It drains you. So we decided in 2021 to only do one live show, Green Rush Live at the Business of Cannabis talk show. My co-host uh, for that show was David Rabinovitz, an old friend, and he continues to do a live business of cannabis talk show every Friday from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern on our network. And we focus on the issues of the day 
in the cannabis industry. And we've had tremendous guests from the CEO of Weedmaps, Chris Beals. WM Technology has come on with us recently. Uh, Bruce Linton, Steve D'Angelo. Um, we've had a lot of Andrew D'Angelo, um, a lot of the biggest names. And now I get to apologize because if you hear any drilling going on, they're doing some construction downstairs. So oh, I no apologize problem. for that. No problem. But uh, it's very subtle and it, and it usually ends and it is after five o'clock here on the east coast so who's ever doing the drilling is working overtime all right <laughs> um so i mean but we could so again now we've got other producers i found that the secret as you know is other people's efforts other people's money so they're now contributing to the cause i do a live show on fridays called the business of cannabis we call it the green rush we're live um i'm slowly taking myself off that show and giving it to my friend david to run because i've done enough shows thank you very much i i really my whole goal is to find new talent train that talent and put them onto their own shows or give or let them develop their own shows like you have and send you on your way right. you know the consumer is in charge now of their use of media when they want it how they want to watch it in what type of form and it goes to creative content producers too you know i mean you know go on that is YouTube, very true go, right so this week, this particular week, and I don't know when you're, you interview, when these interviews run for you, but we are doing um, social media censorship. And there is an issue, as you know, with Facebook and YouTube, Instagram, few others out there, they don't want, they, they, they are enforcing their community guidelines to an extent that is hurting free expression about cannabis. That is very true. Absolutely. So we have put together quite a good a panel to talk about this very issue. Simon, who is the founder of Greenflower, green-flower.com. It's a West Coast-based okay. educational platform that I use when I got my medical card in 2013. I wanted to learn about the best ways to use this plant since I had only used it really for fun and recreation, if you will. Although I always even told my son when he found my little dugout i go look i use it medicinally i use it to help me sleep i use it to help me with my inflammation i use it to help me uh, get rid of my chronic pain and um you know his kid was 15 at the time he's 31 now he certainly understands and his generation are going to grow up with it being just like any other adult product like alcohol right. so um you know that's uh that's really the whole story. I can't believe you got me to talk about myself for this long. It's one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> well, this this episode is dedicated to you. So I appreciate um, it. And then thank you for, for being open. So now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about why we think there's so much, or at least in the past, so much resistance from the government side. Um, to cannabis, because we all know it's not as dangerous as cigarettes. We all know it's not as dangerous and harmful as alcohol. There's so many things that anybody can buy or drink or use freely that cannabis doesn't even come close to being as dangerous as. So in your opinion, and obviously being a renowned uh, sportscast over these years and being exposed to so many different types of people and information, why do you think that at least in the in the later earlier days there was so much resistance. Even still now, it's not federal law, right? It's only mm -hmm. state law. 
that approves cannabis. So why do you think there's been so much resistance to it over, over time? So I have a sociological view of the world in uh, history. I was a history major at Tufts. I studied African-American studies and I studied, um, you know, the history of South Africa and class status and power. And I now know, and my friend David Rabinovich, by the way, just presented the business and political history of cannabis in the United States at the New England Cannabis Convention. Okay. And his brain is so full of things that I didn't know about through history that I was fascinated with the depth of uh, background on this. But I do really believe that this had so much to do with keeping that race status and power in the hands of the white man. And all you really have to do is go back and look at who they put in charge of the first Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And his name was Harry Anslinger. He was a racist. He was, uh, his, his pockets were being filled by guys named DuPont and Hearst and Mellon. And if you look at those guys, especially Hearst, uh, they were in the pulp industry. And the pulp industry um, saw hemp as a threat to their industry. And they they saw can, that. Can I can I ask you why do you think they saw it as a threat? Well, because think about it. You've got paper, right? Or you could replace it with hemp, and they're mm. in the paper industry. So hemp was being used not just for clothing, but also by Mexican Americans. Excuse me, Mexicans. Not they they weren't in America yet. They were in Mexico using cannabis that we we're told for many years was bad. And yet David has evidence of all these studies. The medical community used cannabis as a medicine in the 19th century and in the early 20th century. The studies that were then done by um, the US Army and by the British colon by the British government all showed no harm, use cannabis as a medicine. Then along in the 1910s and 12s and 15s, right around World War I, states started to ban cannabis as a medicine. And it was had a lot to do with the fact that the guys that were in control of the government saw it as a threat to um, paper. And they saw it as a threat because non-white people were using it and enjoying it. And the, mm. And every time they did a study, the United States government did a study, whether it was um, in, uh, let's say, LaGuardia did a report. Uh, there was the Schaefer Commission that Nixon put out there. They kept coming up with um, reasons that were totally fabricated on not using cannabis as a medicine. So they ban it in 1937. And when I talked to doctors about the um, taking a, 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 a plant that was used as medicine outside of our society and banning it. What impact do you think that had on the endocannabinoid system that feeds our immune system and, and manages all of our uh, neurotransmitters in our body? What if they never took cannabis out as a medicine and it remained in our society in the 1920s and 30s and 40s 
and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. Do you really think we'd have as much cancer as we have now? Do you really think that we would have as much autism and all these other things that are neurogenerated diseases? We would not. We would not because we'd been, we would have been using this medicine to cure some of these ills. But instead, we ban it and call it evil and, and produce a movie called Reefer Madness that was funded by, by the, the federal government it, it, to, to say, it's evil. You can't do this anymore. Then along comes a guy named Timothy Leary, who was a professor at Harvard University, gets busted for weed at the Mexican border. I don't know if you knew this, but it, the Supreme Court actually threw out the 1937 Hemp Act uh, in 1969 because they said it was unconstitutional because you had it was all based on a tax on cannabis, a high tax on cannabis. And Leary said, if I admit that I had cannabis, I'd be incriminating myself. So he actually got the Supreme Court to agree that um, cannab the, the prohibition 1937 was unconstitutional. That act, that whole Harry Anslinger thing and making it evil and creating that prop happened. It was legal in 1969. You, it, it, it's amazing to me that people don't recognize this. And then Nixon comes along in 71. And why do you think he put it in a controlled substances and put it at the top of the chart and again with heroin? Because Nixon was a racist, okay? Mm. You heard him on those tapes say it. He says, we got to keep that weed away from those long-haired hippies and those darkies. Those are his words, the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, okay? Please, the guy was a crook. He, he was always a crook, and you can throw in the fact that I've always felt he was a racist, okay? <laughs> Another reason why I love Muhammad Ali. And by the way, what's my image? 1973, I'm, I'm a 10th uh, grader. The president of the United States resigns because he rigged the elections, right? Because he spied on the Democrats. By the way, 40 years later, have we learned anything? Not really, right? Not really. The, the division between our races is, is as bad now as it was in the 60s. And they filled the jails because they profiled people of color for having possession of cannabis on them. Three and a half times more arrests of black people for cannabis possession than white people. And we use it the same amount. It's one of the most disgusting facts of our history. And it bothers me to this day. And the story of um, Sean Worsley, do you know the story of Sean Worsley? No, Arizona know. medical marijuana patient in uh, 2018, driving across the country, decided, had to get gas in Alabama had his medical marijuana locked in his trunk like he's instructed to do. Law enforcement, hey, what are you doing? You got any cannabis in your car? Being a veteran, he told the truth to the law officer and said, yes, I have it locked in a, in a box in the back like I was told by my doctor to do this when I transport across state lines. He goes, well, you're in Alabama. What do you think happened to Sean Worsley? Got arrested, got thrown in jail, had a stroke ended up homeless because he couldn't even defend himself, his rights to be unlawfully prisoned for carrying his own medicine properly prescribed by a doctor in Arizona to another state where it's illegal. It's one of the most disgusting 
and it's 2018, man. Mm. Have, how much progress have we really made? Good news, he's out of jail. Bad news, his wife ended up, I think he had a stroke, the wife had a heart attack. It's a horrible story that ends well because he's now out of jail because we finally did the right thing, okay? And gave him an update. This was a veteran, a guy who put his life on the line in Iraq for our freedoms. And this is how we treat him. Mm. Great, great documentary just got released by PBS, you know, public broadcasting and Nova produced by a woman named Sarah Holt did an interview with her a couple of weeks ago. It's available on YouTube. It's called the cannabis question. Watch it. It, mm. it will. Well, first of all, it's a great story on where we're at right now. It's a very balanced piece of journalism. It has a medicinal angle to it for sure but it tells his story. And I'm so glad that was part of it because this isn't about a drug or adult use recreational. It's a plant medicine that God put on this earth for us so that we can improve our immune systems and we can en enhance our lives if used responsibly. And I preach that all the time. You got to learn how to use it right in order for it to be most effective. And trust me, even someone who feels like he's as um, knowledgeable about this product as I am, sometimes has a whoops moment and takes two five milligram chunks of edible and they were 25 milligrams. So I ended up with 50 milligrams. And <laughs> the, the good thing is uh, it was an extremely uncomfortable experience, but I got through it. I lived to tell the story. I did lose a day of work a couple of <laughs> weeks ago. Okay, I'll admit it. <laughs> Uh, but you know what? A lot of people have to they end up they don't know what it is. So they overdo it on their on this edible. And and again, this is why education is so important, Michael. It's so important. And even even someone who thinks he knows a lot, 353 interviews later, I think I do, but where I still am human and I didn't look. I didn't is this the five milligram or is this the 25 milligram right. edible? Oops, I made a mistake. You know, we're human. By the way, we're not perfect creatures. We're not. But Lord knows I still believe in embracing our differences and diversity and, and we'll never advance as a humanity if we don't figure out why, you know, what's your life, Michael? Like what, you know, what, what's the differences? What have you had to go through that I never have had to go through? It isn't fair. It isn't fair. Sure. And, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and no, and right. I'm here. I'm here to preach the talk. I talk the talk because I've been, I've been fortunate. I have lived the privilege, but man, do I recognize it now? And man, do I want to make a change because I ain't getting any younger, even though my name is young, I'm not getting any younger. So I want yeah. to make sure that my words are heard and shared and my stories are shared. And most importantly, I want to share the stories of those in the industry. I really do. Cause everybody has one. You know, absolutely, absolutely. I have two more questions for you and then we're gonna wrap up. I'm gonna announce what those questions are to you and then you know we'll touch on them each. The first okay. one is where do you see the marijuana industry or the cannabis industry going? You know, slash, what's your hope for the future? That's the first question. Okay, you want one at a time, or you want him both of me at once. Um, so that actually that's actually one question. That's a two-part question. It's one question. So where do you okay, see it going? Good. What is your hope? And then the sec, my yep. second question to you is life advice. You've experienced a lot. You've been through a lot. You've done a lot. Um, <laughs> I, want, I want us to end the podcast with your words of wisdom for All right. 
everybody listening. So the first question is, <laughs> and it's so funny you say that. I'm laughing because I give life <laughs> advice to men all the time, especially young men. Okay. Mm. I'm going to start there. Okay. Okay. You want to start with the life advice? Okay, great. I'm going to say life <laughs> advice first, man, because it's funny. It really is. And it's my okay. own personal experience. So I do admit I'm a bit biased. Okay. Sure. And I do believe that everybody has a different path. So just because this is my belief does not mean that you have to follow this. Okay. Michael, how old are you? Do you mind me asking? Sure. 32. Okay. The best age to be a guy is 40. Mm. And that's because you can still date the 25 year old female. If you're heterosexual, by the way, um, uh, okay, who has not hang on who has not had her kids okay so you can have children of your own with that person that you fall in love with in your right or you can date the 55 year old who has kids and half her ex-husband's money yeah okay yeah so i just i just want to say that's a great you know who you are at 40 okay and you will find a female who will accept you for who you are that should be your goal and, you, and it takes time. Sometimes guys, you know, got to work things out and they think, well, I got to be the breadwinner and I got to be the man and I got to be this. I recommend a book called The Macho Paradox by Jackson Katz. It's a great book to read. It's about men's violence against women. OK, so it's very heavy. OK, but it's worth reading for a lot of reasons. Men can only change the behavior of other men. OK, that's really what I believe, too. So 40 is a great age to be a guy because you're comfortable with who you are at that point. And you should be able to find a partner. And by the way, I don't, I don't care, gay, straight, whatever. You should be able to find a partner who will accept you for who you are. It does take that long for you to kind of experience enough life to see what you want in life. You know, do I want to be a parent of children? By the way, toughest job you'll ever have. Okay, toughest job you'll ever have. Second, um, you, the, the whole uh, life partner thing, it, it, you know, it, just a different way of looking at things. So I give that advice to every guy. And again, I'm over two in the marriage department, but I've been with a with a, an amazing female for 21 years, and we're not married. We're engaged. And when I'm down on one knee, I asked her to marry me, and she says, "Is there a time frame on this?" And I said, "No, <laughs> I just want to take you off the market, okay?" And she goes, "Okay, so it's eventually." I said, "Yeah, eventually," and I'm still waiting 16 years later, okay? Mm. And I know, and, and again, but I don't. I want to be with her for the rest of my life, okay? Right. I don't want to screw it up because she's a little bit of every female I've ever been with, every woman I've ever been with. Sure. Now, the first question. Ask me the first. question. Question. Sure. Again. The first question was, what is your hope for the future? What do you what do you foresee? What do you see? What do you see the, the cannabis industry going as far as our laws well, and in general? And what is your hope for the future? My hope is that they get it off schedule one as quickly as possible. It's an administrative decision. It doesn't even have to go through Congress. The Department of Justice can change that scheduling whenever they want. Steve D'Angelo taught me that. And I really don't understand why in the world we have to go through this whole rigmarole with the two-party system and the Democrats want this and the Republicans want this. And, and if they say this, I'm going to say that. I'm so sick of the two-party system. Power and greed are the two biggest viruses and diseases in our world. They're dangerous to give 
those who have been most impacted by the war, the failed war on drugs, an opportunity to get into this industry that has so many parts in it, that have so many opportunities for people that are entrepreneurs and, and, and their science and research and um, everything. It, it, there's so many opportunities in an industry that can be as big as it is. And it's already big. I mean, it's ridiculous. And did you know that 44% of Americans now live in adult use states. 44%. I did not know that. No. Okay. Half. Exactly. 19 states. I'm going to tell South Dakota to get off the schneid and do what the voters wanted. Okay. So I'm going to include 19. Okay. 36 states have medical programs. And if you take it off schedule one, it opens the banks and it decriminalizes it federally. Then stay the freak out of cannabis, federal government, let the states do what they want. Now, as far as interstate commerce goes, that is an interesting dynamic that we will be discussing on October 29th on the Green Rush Live show, because I do think there is the play for the federal government to get involved, to have some kind of interstate commerce tax for federal to the feds. But again, that's a long way off. I give Senator Schumer, Wyden, and Booker a lot of credit for sticking their nose and legs and necks out, if you will, and, and at least starting this public discussion with the CAO bill. And now they've gotten an impact from the public and they've gotten um, feedback from the industry. And now they might be able to actually work out a way to get some kind of reform going. But to me, open the damn banks, okay? It's, I get it, cash, cash. You know what? Open the banks. Let research begin, and it has starting to. Now they, they've just passed, so you can do research. At least they can do research on state-grown weed in legal states. This is big because they, you know, for a long time, it was only the University of Mississippi, and they kept their old weed in a freezer. This is not mm. a good thing to study. You don't want to study inert weed. It doesn't make any sense when you've got your, your constituents and your consumers using high-quality tested cannabis mm. right and That's somehow i would like to see some kind of tax incentive program that allows the legacy movement to move into the legal space i really would again an opportunity is there there's plenty of money to be made in this industry if it's fairly distributed and people have an opportunity to get into it right now it's very difficult to get a license in any state i don't even care if it's a lottery you need to have lawyers and accountants it's about a million dollars really to just get this thing going just to get in line to get a license that's not something that you know money doesn't grow on trees okay and the other thing, the expungement of all these records of all these people that have been locked up for possession crimes, I want to see a workforce development program that gets those people trained with the skills to be contributing members to society and to the industry if they so choose. Let's create opportunities for those people that we put in jail because they were profiled by law enforcement. That's, those are the things I'd like to see happen. Okay, and you notice I didn't say federal legalization because I don't think it needs to be legalized. Right. And, and I was going to actually going to ask you on that. You didn't mention that. None of the people that I talked to, none. It's almost a consensus of the industry. They don't have any faith that the federal government knows enough about the product 
the industry and how it works right now to put in place the proper structure for legalization. Do you trust the FDA can't even come up with rules and regulations for infusing CBD in products that ain't going to get you stoned? You're not going to overdose. It's freaking anti, it's an anti-inflammatory for crying out loud, right? CBN, CBN is the cannabinoid that can help you sleep. Do you know how many people struggle with sleep issues in this country? So I'm like, put it in food, put it in, no one's going to die. Okay. It is not, it, it, find me and oh and also bring up the research because of course the federal government's afraid well how do we know we don't know because we've been banning it oh but the federal government did hold a patent on cbd for a number of years while they still kept it at schedule one you talk about hypocritical that's the ultimate hypocritical thing that ever happened so all these those are the things that's what i'd like to see happen i don't know if i'll see it you know, I didn't think I'd see the Red Sox win the World Series. Now they've won so many. I'm like, I know. Hey, you I don't even care anymore. I'm satisfied. Okay. I didn't think That's the Patriots would ever win a championship. I'm satisfied. I've That's seen things I never thought I'd see before, including the legalization in my home state of Massachusetts. Never did I think. And I'm now talking about weed as a career or at least a, an opportunity and a venture. Right. You know, Don, Don King. Only in America, baby. Only yeah. in America, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. He was right. Guy was a wackadoo, was. but he was right. You know, he was. He was. So, and I, I thank you again for just explaining your your stance and and your hope for the future brilliantly. My question to you is, and I'm only saying this because you said that you don't think it's necessary, but don't you think that without federal legal, legalization? That, yep. that the door is not quite 100% open. So, so if, you can, if you can take what I just put out there as an um, immediate goal, a short-term goal, that will allow the research and the studies to at least evolve so that in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, when the federal government finally has the right people Okay, and I, it has nothing to do with political party here. It has to do with the right people in place to make the right decisions. Then legalizing. There's going to be an international trade market with cannabis. Don't kid yourself. When they can grow cannabis for five cents a gram in Colombia, and it costs 50 to a dollar to grow it in the United States of America. Don't you think there's going to be some kind of international trade in cannabis mm. at some point? Right. So we're so still so early. Think about how long it's taking just to open the first dispensary in the states that voted it in a few years ago. Right. Massachusetts voted in adult use in 2016. They voted medical in. Well, it started 2013 because I think they voted it in 2012 and it started. I think they started the next year. Got to check my facts on that. But you know, it takes time. And Massachusetts started with two dispensaries in 2018. And now they're close to about 160. And it's still only 2021. So that's five years after the vote. And they haven't reached saturation yet in the state. And there is a saturation number. I think uh, Commissioner Hoffman 
I think he had something like 250. So, you know, we're more than halfway to what he thinks will be saturation in the Massachusetts market. And by the way, the cost per pound in Massachusetts for wholesale cannabis is $4,400. California, I know they've got some issues there. I think it's between six and 900 per pound in California. So there's a little supply and demand going on. And that's why that interstate commerce thing has to be worked out before you move towards open market. Right. Right. But it, it, and I don't know how long I'm going to live and, 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 you know, you're going to live forever, Jimmy. You're going to live thank forever. Thank you. Forever young. Hey, <laughs> there you go. Uh, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, but I will say no matter what happens, uh, you know, I, I'm, I've had an incredible life. Uh, my friends know this about me that, you know, I'm extremely happy where I am right now. And uh, no matter what happens in the future, I die a very happy man. That's I've impacted, great. you know. That's all we can hope, all hope for, right? Right, man. That's exactly right. And you know what? And, and treat people with respect, especially those that look different and act different from you. Because I guarantee you, you're going to find something in common with that person. And I don't know about you, Michael, but there's plenty of times where 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I would break the law on a regular basis because I, ooh, I smell weed. Ooh, I'm going to walk around here. Ooh, check it out. There's a couple of people. I have no idea who they are, but they're smoking weed. Hey, got any room for, got a room for an old fart who wants a hit? Yeah, come on over, man. It brings people together. It really does. People you don't know. It's something you have in common with someone. That's all. That's what you need to find. Instead of, we're different. So I want to stay away from you. Come on. That's not, that's not right. That's not right. Hate is a taught activity. People teach hate. Love is natural. Right? Love is oh, natural. I love that. Right? Hate is a taught activity. Love is natural. So we need love more that. love and less hate, right? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I need 100%. a win for the Red Sox because I hate the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> That's on that note, thank you so much for joining uh, the podcast. Please, um, how can listeners find you and how can they support you? Either through YouTube, like, through your website. Yes, Please, all of the above. Interview. Subscribe to the newsletter. It's like, share, and subscribe. You know, please follow us on ProCannabisMedia.com. Go to our YouTube channel. Uh, if you have Roku, add the channel as a, a streaming channel on your platform. If you have Apple TV, it's under the apps section, PCM TV. And you know what the best part is? If you subscribe to our content, a lot of my friends understand this so well. The sure. mute button works on me really well. Okay. <laughs> and a lot of my friends enjoy being able to mute me whenever they want. Yeah. So Michael, you've allowed me way more time than most people. So thank you for that. And uh, you're in my no, book of you. life as far as I'm concerned. Anything I can no. do for you, just call. No, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, uh, Jimmy. I appreciate you. And I, honestly, I'd love to, to have you back. I think it'll be great to establish um, a reoccurring role for you, even me on your podcast. Are you here where we can when when news comes out that we want to discuss or, or you know get get our thoughts our thoughts out yes. on we can we can hop on each other's podcast and and, and talk sounds like a plan never All met right. a guy I never wanted to talk to i always love it thank you yeah. so much for giving me this opportunity no thank you jimmy and uh until next time